So the invitations have gone out. The guests have been invited. And as is the custom, even a messenger has gone around right before the party starts to remind the guests you're invited to a party. It starts very soon. Get ready. Come. It's a party of an expe- with an expected guest list. And as we read in the gospel this morning of Luke, I want you to watch for two twists in the story. What happens to the guests, the elite, who are expecting an invitation? And what about the other group? Those who never would deserve a seat at this table. For that really is, I believe, the core teaching of the parable of the great banquet in Luke, also recorded in Matthew. I'd like to look at another feature of it this morning. But would you watch for the twists on these two groups invited to a party? An invitation comes to them, and the messenger comes around, and here's what happens. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master, and then the owner of the house became angry. He ordered his servant, you go out in the, in the uh, streets, in the alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has already been done, but there is still room at the table. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes, meaning go anywhere people are. Go wherever you can find people and make them come, so my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were originally invited will get a taste of my banquet. Every one of those guests invited says, please excuse me. And to be quite honest, in first century Palestine, these aren't even very good excuses. Please excuse me, I just bought some land and I need to go see it. Who buys land and they haven't already seen it? Please excuse me, i got to go practice with my oxen. It's enough oxen to plow fields for years. Who needs to practice with oxen if you can afford that many of them? Maybe the last excuse, you know, I just got married Give me a break. It's as if to say, I have enough social obligation already. Don't expect me at your banquet. They're not even really that clever of excuses. Nothing ground-shaking, no emergency taking place. What's interesting to me, though, is that every single one of these excuses are accepted. There is no bribery. The person throwing the party doesn't go back to those who got the original invitation. There's no arm twisting. There's no one getting on the telephone saying, but if you don't come, it won't be a party. Come, come. Everyone's allowed to make an excuse. And then the invitation just keeps going out and going out. And even the next tier and the next tier, there's still room at the table. No one has to come to the party if they don't want to. And Jesus teaches us something about God's guest list and something about God's willingness to let what be will be, be. People get to choose whether this party is going to be for them 
so to speak. You can't make me come to your party is another way of summarizing the parable in Luke chapter 14. You can't make me come. If I don't want to come, I don't have to come. I watched this happen last week at a party. A whole family came, all the children dressed. It's supposed to be fun, games, good food, friends, entertainment. And yet there was one little boy who began to act out. You can't make me come to this party. He began to scream and throw a tantrum, and we know what that looks like. And from a distance, Kirby and I watched, and I thought, oh, grief, this is going to get bad. And he began to tear his clothes off. His shirt came off, and pretty soon he's rolling on the ground, and I don't know, he looks like a first or second grader. And then he begins to hit his parents, and, you know, you see two, two parents who've just totally given up. He's saying to them, you can't make me come to this party. I didn't want to come to your dumb party. Not only is he saying that, he's saying, and I'll make you miserable at your party. You can't make me. We've all heard the line, right? If you've not used it, you've at least heard it. But I'm assuming I have friends out here who who have that same streak running through you that I have running through me. You can't make me. If I don't want to, you can't make me. Does anybody relate to that? There's an honest soul in the back. So my mother and father raised four children on Sabbath morning. The only story I hear her tell is four children to get ready for church. And there you are, Christy Lou, she calls me. And there you are, fix your hair, curl it up, slick it back, bows, ribbons, whatever was the fashion of the day. And somewhere between the bathroom and the car, the hair was history. And I'm telling her, you can't make me wear my hair like that to church. You just can't make me. From... The time I began to walk until I moved out of the house, you can't make me wear my hair that way. Does anybody relate? You you can't make me. You can't make me like what you like. You can't make me like the music you like. You can't make me love to be a reader. You can't make me, you can't make me want to be happy at home. Can't make me love you. You can't make me anything because I get to decide these things. You can't make me. And somewhere an intricate collaboration takes place in our brain. Uh, in a collaboration between the limbic area and the prefrontal cortex, something in there happens. The human free will is born. Decisions are made. I'll decide. You can't make me. And nobody can make you either. This is a cry we first hear in Eden coming from the serpent. Not just in the New Testament from banquet guests. From the serpent in Eden, part of the identity theft conversation now that we've introduced two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Not only is God not who God says, don't trust him. This God is not, not trustworthy. You might do better on your own. You might even do better with me, the serpent says. Not only should you be careful of this God, but you have options. You have choices, the serpent really says in the Garden of Eden. That's the first time we hear the cry, you can't make me. I get to choose. Even you, God, who created all of this, you can't make me. I'll choose for myself. It's where we first hear the cry in Eden. Specifically, the Satan says to Adam and Eve, you're not going to die. God said, don't eat of the tree. You're not going to die. You have options. He can't make you. He can't make you. Don't trust God. However, 
there are, I'm finding as I study, more and more and more subtle layers to identity theft. That is, stealing someone's good name for your own selfish purposes. There are more and more subtle layers. And in today's story, I believe there's another subtle layer that Satan makes Adam and Eve, wants Adam and Eve to believe that somehow they don't have a choice if they're with God. That somehow what Satan is offering them is new. But if you read with me, you'll notice that that's not the case. And by the way, I'm just going to pause because last week I said one non-negotiable now for the sermon series that we'll, we'll keep in our conversation is God as other-centered, self-sacrificing, agape love. That will be a non-negotiable. And it, it will, everything else will have to grow out of this. And so for Satan to say to Adam and Eve, you know, God, you have choices. You don't have, he can't make you. That's not news because agape love, others-centered, self-sacrificing love, always has that person's best interest in mind. That person, Adam and Eve, you and I, we've always had a choice from the very beginning because that is the nature of agape love. But somehow Satan is working on Adam and Eve to persuade them that it's otherwise, that somehow that this self-sacrifice and agape love doesn't really mean they've got choices. Genesis 2 is where the conversation happens between Adam and God in the garden. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to care for it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're to eat freely from the tree in the garden, but, from the, from, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. When you eat of it, the one in the center of the garden, you will surely die. And if God's character now is others-centered, self-sacrificing love, when he tells Adam, you must not eat of this or you'll surely die, already in the equation there is the idea that Adam has a choice. When God says, don't eat of it, there must be a choice to obey or not to obey if God is really others-centered agape love. It isn't as if Adam is bound, as if God says, don't eat of it, and then he binds his hands and hides him somewhere in the garden, or he, he covers the tree with a black tarp so Adam won't be tempted. It isn't as, he, as if God somehow affixes, adheres the fruit to the branch so that you could never pluck it, that it's never an option. It isn't as if any of that. Adam has had a choice from the moment he heard these instructions. God cannot force Adam to comply. Because agape love can't operate that way. God can't coerce Adam. But I, I believe these two things go together. And I'm, I will use Rick Rice's, Dr. Rice's definition of freedom. For freedom, for human freedom to exist, there must be no coercion, absence of coercion. And there must be a real option. You must really have the option to pick the fruit or to not pick the fruit. There has to be a real alternative. Otherwise, there's not free will happening. We really are free in the Garden of Eden. We really, Adam and Eve, really do have a choice. It is not as easy for us in our world. Our world is a little more complicated and complex. We don't have free will, although a lot of us operate as we do. But we really don't. I had to pay my DMV registration this week. I don't get a choice if... If I, if I want to drive, I've got to register my car. I've got to insure my car. If you got a paycheck this week or last week, then the paychecks come to the medical center employees this week, you pay taxes. You don't get to say, no, thank you. It's my choice. You try it, but we probably won't see you sitting in church too much longer. 
We, we don't get to operate in the world with total free choice, with total free will. When the teacher says, turn in your homework, we really need to do that if we want to get in and out of school. When, when the doctor says, you know, it's cancer and here's the chemotherapy and here's the radiation and here's the pills to swallow, boy, if you want to live, you don't have a choice. So we live in an interesting world where we really don't have free choice all the time, yet we really don't operate with agape, others-centered, others-focused, self-sacrificing love. So to understand what God is really giving us is not so easy. It can be a little confusing. I'm guessing that the closest any of us have ever gotten to really other-centered, self-sacrificing love is when you dated someone. Not now, when it first started. Those of you who've dated, you know how it is in those first few days and weeks, how you just do anything for the other person. How you just do ridiculous, stupid things even for the other person. Totally other-centered kind of purging love even. I remember our first date, Kirby and I, and we were going to go eat pizza. Not my favorite food. Didn't really matter. He said, what do you like on your pizza? I said what all women would say, anything. Is that true? No. Other-centered, wanting to please self. I don't care what you put on the pizza. I just want to be with you. But what, don't, what do you really want on your pizza? Anything. Is there anything you don't like? No, it's all fine. I hate mushrooms. I, they make me throw up. I have a friend. I don't like them. Don't think they came in the six days of creation, Dave. <laughs> but when you're all involved in other centered love, you know, I, that's probably the closest we can even grasp to other centered love. Total freedom, allowing whatever, whatever you want to eat on your pizza, fine with me. In order for Adam and Eve to be really free, they cannot be coerced, and there must be a genuine option for this. Even if it means, God, I don't want to come to your party, if you'll allow the metaphor. I don't want to come to your party at the end of all of this, and I don't want to be at your party right now. There isn't really anything that interests me about the kingdom right now. When Satan calls a question on God's character, it unleashes a struggle, all right. It unleashes a struggle that I suggested last week is not just between God and Satan, but it it becomes between us and God. And Satan makes ground when he calls question. Because now we wonder if we're really free, if we really do have choice, if God is really allowing us to move about, or are we being coerced? Are we just part of some organized plan? And Satan's been very effective at making us believe we really don't have choices in all of this. It's all about God. Like this book cover I found earlier uh, last week, a child on the front. The title of the book is really, You Can't Make Me. See that face? Uh, But the subtitle reads, But I Could Be Persuaded. I could be persuaded. And this is precisely the point. Our struggle is not with God. The non-negotiable last week, the agape love, the self-sacrificing love, what I want to add to that this week is the idea that out of that kind of love will necessarily come the option for you and I to be totally free. It's the only way that kind of love can work. To be contrary to that would be to be contrary to agape love itself. If there is agape love, it necessarily means that you and I and all of creation really are free, not coerced. We really have choices. 
And that has amazing ramifications. And where do we find evidence for that? Remember, I said, we're going to watch Jesus because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, let me go back to the New Testament then where our banquet conversation started. You don't have to come to the party if you don't want to sit at the table. But what else, What other evidence do we see for this? Luke chapter 15, if you just churn one chapter ahead there, those are three stories together. You remember of the lost things, the sheep, the coin, the lost son. If it's really not an option to get lost, then why don't you just make sheep that can't get out of the pen and coins that are, you know, so heavy they can't fall through cracks. If it's really not an option to get lost, why don't those stories go some other way? The prodigal son, not only is it an option for him to leave and get lost, but he leaves with the father's blessing. Not only does he leave, he takes goods with him. Not only does he leave, he goes wherever he wants to do and does God know, God knows what. With his life, not only does he get to walk away from the party, but he gets to choose whatever he wants while he's gone. And, and we watch the father in the prodigal son story, and Jesus teaches us something about God's character. For it is the father in the story who just waits and waits and waits in anticipation that someday that son may come home and say, I've changed my mind. I'd like to be part of this party. And we learn that agape love will not coerce us to stay. It will not coerce us to participate in the family if we really don't want to. Keep reading in the New Testament because it seems to me fairly clear. If God wants to show God's in charge, there'd be a very easy way to do this. Have Jesus march into Jerusalem, march into the Roman Empire, go up to Caesar's throne, kick Caesar off the throne. Jesus can now sit on the throne and they can post all the guards and Jesus could be in charge. Mint new coinage, put the picture of Jesus of Nazareth and announce that Jesus is now the ruler of the empire and, and everyone will bow down to Jesus. In fact, you can go into the temple and have Jesus kick the priests out. And, and, and now Jesus can put a whole temple procedure in place that reflects heaven above as it should be on earth below. Let Jesus seize the temple and the temple leadership. Hey, put the disciples in there. What are you going to do with those 12 guys anyway? Let them become the temple priests, right? Let, let Jesus' kingdom really take over if God's going to be in charge. Show them how it's going to be. But we have no evidence for that in the New Testament. We just get this Jesus entering the world like a tiny, and a tiny baby, totally dependent, coming to a family with no name, with no status in the world, totally dependent. God enters our world. He walks down by the sea. He sends out an invitation to 12 people. Every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the invitation, come and follow me. We only hear 12 guys who take him up on the invitation, and a group of other followers and disciples that travel along. We never have a record of how many people don't follow. How many people say, mm, I've weighed all the evidence, I, I really don't want to come. In fact, there is a little conversation between one man who shouts back to Jesus, oh, but I'll come, I'll, I'll follow you, I'll do whatever you ask. And Jesus turns and says to him, no, you don't know what you're talking about. He, he doesn't even allow him to come along. There seems to be choice woven all the way through the New Testament. Even Jesus gets a choice, doesn't he? Last week we read the story of the temptation in the wilderness. Doesn't Jesus have a choice how to handle himself? You move to Gethsemane where there's the conflict with the guards and the, the ear of the soldier is sliced off and there's a hostile engagement there. And Jesus says, what? You don't think if I called my father I could unleash so many angels you all would be covered? Could solve this thing? 
Even in the quiet conversation in Gethsemane with God, Jesus says, hey, if it's God, if it's your will, let, let this be done. But Jesus has a choice. Even Jesus has a choice. It is the implications now of all of this that are very striking for me. And I think this is what matters most. If agape love really means humans have free will, that all creatures have freedom, what does that really mean, not just for us, but for God? What does that mean for us? It means we could interfere with God's intentions. God can really throw a party and we can really not come. God could really organize a healing and we could really choose not to be healed in the New Testament. Whatever it is God would really like to have happen, the will of heaven unleashed on earth, we could interfere with that if we really have free choice in all of this. We're not just simply watching God's plan unfold. We're taking a step out and enacting it. If human freedom is really as I've described We're not just waiting to take our place in some grand play that's already been predetermined. We don't pray, thy foreknowledge be done, do we? We pray, thy will be done. And if you and I in the Garden of Eden, created in the image of God, are given this creative capacity to go out in the world with God in total freedom, wow, what a potential we have to interfere, absolutely, but also for good. And how this obligates God. Because now it's God plus humans equals the future. Wouldn't you say? Doesn't it have to be that way? God plus humans equals the future. Do you see how God puts God's self at risk by choosing you and I? That God opens himself up to that kind of potential to me is what's most amazing in this story. That you take the one perfect being who says, yeah, I'm going to let you in on this with me. I watched at the, I think it was the Metropolitan Museum years ago, master painter, beautiful painting down in the, this exhibit area who allowed children to come up and pick up a brush and add to his artwork. You're like, are you crazy? It was beautiful. It'd be like that. It's like a master artist saying, here, here's a brush. Help me with what I'm working on. It'd be like an auto mechanic, a master of, I don't know, you name the kind of car, you know, finely tuned engines, difficult parts, cranky, cranky automobiles, somebody who's finely skilled, allowing a a child to walk up, put a wrench in their hand, let them go underneath there and mess around. Be like being in the kitchen with a master pastry chef where everything is intricate and precise and weighed and measured and the humidity and all matters. And, and you let somebody in who's never, ever touched anything in the kitchen in their life. Come, help me make a cream puff. Are you crazy? When God gives creatures this kind of freedom, it opens God up to amazing, amazing risk. And it opens you and I up to really amazing potential to join God in God's work on this earth. I just want to touch briefly on this last notion then. If, if this is true, if this is what freedom looks like, if we're not coerced, if we really have a choice, if when you wake up this morning and the next morning and the next morning, you really are partnering with God as history unfolds, you're not just acting out some play he's already prescribed, But if you're actually participating, what frightens us is that 
does that mean everything's not already known ahead of time? Because we take great comfort in that. God knows everything, beginning from end, every little detail. My, how I've heard this preached in every possible way from the time I was tiny, in every Sabbath school quarterly, in academy classrooms, in college classrooms, people praying in college classrooms for their partners, their future partners, because God's already determined who they're going to marry, and it's all worked out. And so I don't even know why you need to pray about it, by the way. If it's all worked out, you don't even need to pray. Does that make sense? Why do I need to pray about that person? God's got it fixed. It's incoherent. If God's got it all worked out, then what are we doing here? And what is human freedom about? Does it exist or doesn't it? And what makes us uncomfortable is the notion that if it's not all worked out, then what? Are we at risk? What is coming clearer to me the more I learn about God And what I suggest to you this morning is that maybe what's not so comforting is knowing every little detail that takes place. Maybe what's even more comforting and bigger and grander than all that is knowing the God who's capable of any of this. You're always safe with this God. It doesn't even matter what the little details are. The little details are so insignificant. If God is all good all the time and we have free will, Doesn't it work out? Doesn't it work out? It scares us to think along these lines. And I know some of you are just fine the way your world is ordered. And I want to respect that. For some people, it brings great comfort. There are, are no inconsistencies. Everything is fine. The way you think about God, the way God interacts in your life is working for you. And then there are other people who it is not just fine. And they look around the world and we can't make sense of it. And remember at the beginning of this conversation I said, we have to find real answers that make sense in the real world. So I look around my world. Is it just fine that 134 people die in Pakistan because an ex-leader comes home and somebody decides to strap a couple suicide bombs on? Just fine with God? Just carrying out a plan? Or did somebody wake up in the morning and have a real option to make a real choice that could not only impact the future but implicate God and and that's the question you'll have to decide it occurs to me however and I agree with the statements that I've read it is worth it for God to have free creatures even though free creatures can go wrong because what is the alternative What would God interact with if we are not free? And furthermore, um, the way it's stated this way I like best, a world where creatures are free is much more valuable than a world with no free creatures at all. What does it do for God? If you and I are really not free or if we really are free, what are the implications for God? I'm being persuaded that God also needs free creatures on earth for God's kingdom to come. You and I have that kind of power. So our risk is not, uh, our risk is not with God. And that's what identity theft is all about. Satan persuading us our risk is with God. Sarah, I'm going to throw this rope to you. It's, I think Steve, I'm going to try to throw this rope to you. 
Pink, did I get you? I chose you instead of Dan because maybe we're equally suited in strength. Steve Case is the one in his uh, baptismal studies who, in the first lesson, the great controversy, the struggle going on in the earth, he has the kids take a rope and puts one on one end and one on the other and just pull. And you got to pull now, girl. And pull and pull. And he says to the students, this is what's going on in the universe. This is the problem. There is a controversy, all right. There is goodness on one side, and there's someone calling question to the goodness on the other. And in the process of calling question on the goodness, what I think happens to you and I is that we begin to do this same tug of war, only we do it with God. And now, instead of God and Satan doing it, I'm saying, but wait a minute, God, maybe I'm really not free. Maybe I'm really just acting out whatever it is you're telling me to act out down here. Maybe you're not really who you say you are, and is this the best you could do for an earth? Those are the questions that come into mind. The answers have to make sense in the real world, and I'll tell you, for me as a young adult, this is how it, made, it came to me, and this is why I work on it. Because one day I woke up as a young adult, And I said that to God. Is this the best you can do? Really? This is the best you can do for a planet? And maybe you all have had your moments like this with God too. And I've heard some of your stories. Is this the best you can do? I woke up one day and said, because I'm adopted, and it made no sense to me the blessing of being adopted, the blessing of having a home versus the blessing of of not being, and being aborted. And none of that made sense to me. And I woke up one day and said, this is the best you can do, God? You make a world where mommies can give away children. You make a world where daddies can say, get rid of the baby. This is it? I tell you what my thing is, because I know you all have your own. Whatever your own is, you'll have to insert your own conversation. But what I decided to do that day was stop making this struggle about God. This is not God's problem. This is what we live with because we all get free choice and God values that. But God did not cause it. It's not God's first choice for my life. And I decided sometime when I was a young adult, I'm going to stop wrestling against God. I'm not going to make this a God problem. I'm going to try and find a God solution. For me, knowing that God gives us free will is part of the solution. For me, knowing when I look around the world, the reason it looks this way, the reason people can do what they do, is because when God created, God created humans and creation that could interact back with God. This is one of the challenges. You have to decide for yourself, friends. Creaturely freedom. I believe that it's a non-negotiable in the conversation. God values your freedom and mine. Now, what does that say to you about God? I invite you to think about that as our team leads us. God, we want to know you more, and we realize how struggle, what a struggle this can be. In the end, we want to trust our experience with you. What we see in Jesus, the good that we see in the world that can't be explained any other way 
than you and your presence here. May we know you more and more and more this week. In Jesus' name I pray, I invite you to say, amen.